Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Tremors, Making Perfection, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Gross, and every Friday for the next six weeks, we're going deep on the making of Tremors with the people who made it. From the very first draft of the script that birthed the Graboids to the challenges of filming in the middle of the desert, the cast and crew are going to tell you everything you need to know about the monster movie that became a cult classic. So Graboid yourself a seat, and let's make perfection. What do Tremors and Monty Python have in common? Answer, Brent Maddock. Growing up, the co-writer was a huge comedy fan. And you can see that influence in Val and Earl's banter as they bounce across the desert in their old truck. After working on stop-motion horror short Recorded Live and cult hit feature Short Circuit, Brent and Steve Wilson were a dream team, a perfect balance of comedy and sci-fi that would make Tremors so special. Here's Brent talking about his time working on the film. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Who were your biggest influences and what movies were you watching? Pretty much what everybody was watching and loving and all that stuff. Obviously, westerns, you know, cowboy movies, that was a big influence. Um, I loved cartoons. Like every kid, you know, I was just absolutely loved cartoons. I feel a little bit ashamed. I think back to when I was three and four and five. And I, you, even at that age, you're such an easy audience. You loved even really bad stuff that just wasn't funny, but it, it made you laugh. And um, so, yeah, cartoons. Um, the um, rather quickly realized the, that. The Looney Tunes were, for me, the best. Those were the funniest. And uh, so I love those particularly. And um, when Steve and I were roommates while we were at film school, and for a few years after film school, in this pathetic apartment in Hollywood, it was so sad, we made sure, this was before video, before, you know, before VCRs, when everything was either, if you didn't see it, you never you saw it again. And we would schedule, I don't know what night it was, it was like Tuesday night or something, there would be a half hour of Looney Tunes on TV, and we'd both arrive as if to class, sit down on the sofa with our spiral notebooks, because we're gonna watch these Looney Tunes, and we had to write down who directed it, who wrote it, and the information we needed, and a brief, a brief description of the story so we could, and the title, so we could remember it because you couldn't just go back and look at it. It was going by in real time. So we studied Looney Tunes, really for about a year. It was so funny. We'd watch Looney Tunes as though we were in like Looney Tunes 101, but we'd always love that stuff. So, uh, and we later ended up to our amazement working for Chuck Jones for a while. So that was just astonishing for us to, to do that. But um, yeah, those were a big influence. And, you know, the usual crap I think kids find funny. I don't know that anything was... I didn't begin to appreciate the silent comics until, really, until I was in grad school. Then I started to realize what geniuses some of them were. That was a big influence as well. Keaton especially. Chaplin, of course. But um, I think Keaton, he's more modern, more relatable than Chaplin is. Uh, so that was... That was a big influence. Uh, then you throw in Monty Python, and you're done. <laughs> That's a lot. When we started film school, and I met Steve, uh, and, and a few other friends who were also monster movie fans, and they would talk in a, in a language I didn't understand. I didn't know who Ray Harryhausen was, and they would talk about Vincent Price in this movie and all these wonderful films, these Hammer films and all, and they were just really, really into it. And to me, it was all new. I never watched those movies. They were fine. I didn't have anything against a scary movie, but they were not my big influence. My big influence was more comedy, physical, probably more physical comedy than even verbal comedy. So. Um, you know, not that Steve doesn't appreciate comedy because he's really, really into it as well um, and understands a lot about it. But um, so those were the two, the two things. So I guess that explains why Tremors is both 
comedic and horror at the same time. Yeah, that's probably pretty close to, to what it is. There was a, um, when the, I mean, you've heard the story of how we came, we, how really Steve came up with the idea for the movie and uh, that little scrap of paper that was, um, and we started, obviously as a writer, you're going, what do we need? We need people isolated so that they can't call the police and get help because there's no story. You know, we need a group of people because some of them will have to die. It's like those people in Star Trek. You know that guy's going to die because you've never seen him before. But you needed that. There are certain things you needed. And when we sort of, so we came up with this little town in the desert, this town that gets isolated. And, um, uh, but the question then is well, what is it? Is it a drama? Is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? Well, do we want it to be scary? And uh, you have to constantly remind yourself of those, of uh, ask yourself those questions. So what we did, we wrote a number of drafts of this. And, uh, and we had, I think, an important moment, which was looking at the script and going, it's pretty funny. There's some really funny gags, some funny stuff. And, and we wondered, is that gonna make you take the creatures less seriously, are they gonna be less of a scare? Because nobody's taking them really seriously. And we thought, yes, probably, but we're not gonna take that chance. So we went through and did something that we rarely do with the script, we made it less funny, and took out a lot of jokes and a lot of sequences that would have been wonderful visually, but would have been, you would have enjoyed them in a comedic way. So we made it more serious. So it's a weird balance. And often you can't get the, the you know balance is, is it's a tricky thing, and uh, we wanted the jokes to come out of the frights and the uh, and the scares. We didn't want anybody acting like these big worms are something to laugh at. Um, and I, I think we struck for that at least we struck the right balance. So can you just tell me again the story of how how you first met um, Steve and Ron? Well, I. Uh, uh, I drove out to LA to go to USC film school as a grad student, and Steve had done the same. Uh, he'd gotten out of the army after two years in the army, uh, and then came out to LA, and we both started in the middle of the year, so we were starting the same semester. And I went over to the film school, which at the time, as famous as it was, was this ramshackle old building, which was at one time the ROTC uh, stables for their horses or something. It really looked like it. Although it was charming, it was perfect, it's all you needed. Now it's its own giant city. You go to USC Film School, you just can't believe what they've got. But then it was very simple. And I wandered over to see what it looked like and uh, walked into the courtyard. And uh, there's this guy sitting there with this big old briefcase. And I went over and introduced myself and it was Steve. It was like I just drove to LA, walked in and met my writing partner. It was just like, I thought, well, if I'd known that, it's like, all right, I don't need to go to film school, we'll just start working. But, uh, and we hit it off really well, you know, even though he's a mom, mostly a monster movie guy and all that stuff, but we found enough in common. And um, we eventually, and then I was in some of his student films, you know, we helped each other out with, with our, you know, the films they assigned us to make uh, that first semester. And uh, we started working together more and more, then eventually became roommates and continued it uh, throughout grad school and afterwards as well. 
How does it work when the two of you are co-writing? Can you paint a portrait? Is is one of you pacing around while the other one is typing away? There was the funny story of Billy Wilder working with Raymond Chandler on Dublin Devnity. They couldn't stand each other. And they're in the same office. And Raymond Chandler, of course, when he worked, smoked a pipe. So Billy Wilder made him sit in the bathroom with the door shut. And they would shout at each other through the bathroom door. It was just great, you know, because they wrote a great movie, so it's worth all the pain and suffering. But um, we, when we started out, when Steve was still in L.A. before he went off to Arizona, we would sit in the same room all day together, and he tended to write stuff down because he can touch type, something I cannot do. I have to look at the keys, and I go very slowly. So he would write everything down, and we would just talk. We would talk. And there's you know various phases. One thing is you're just throwing stuff around, throwing ideas around, searching for anything that will stick to anything else. That's what I like. Graboid! That's it, Graboid! Jesus, Walter. We're gonna be sorry you don't give it a name. Who came up with the name Graboid? We uh, looked up in the dictionary or thesaurus anything related to worm. And there was a prefix of grab and a variety of words that had something to do with worms. And I like grab. And so the oid is just perfect, oid, because it sounds sci-fi and just cheesy enough. And then Walter Chang, you know, the Victor Wong character, who was wacky in his own right, it was just the perfect guy to come up with grab, grab, graboid, you know, and it was just funny. It was just off center enough, but pseudoscientific enough that it seemed to work. So that, that's how we came up with graboid. The dictionary, very important. And Gail said that some of the first drawings of the graboids looked like circumcised penises. Well, I, they, yeah, some of them were, yeah. But it's hard, given what you're doing, not to immediately think of a penis, you know. I mean, how do you, what do you make the head of the thing look like? So, yeah, that was funny. That was funny. That would have been a comedy, no matter what. That would have been a big, you know, laugh riot in the desert. Probably made a lot more money, too, I don't know. You created some strong female roles in Tremors. Was that a conscious decision? Yeah, one of the first things, when we said... Sci-fi, subterranean monsters, people trapped in a small town, all of that. You know, the first things that come up are all of your, all of the cliches that you know. Of course, Steve knew them better than I did, but we knew we didn't want a defenseless female. You know, someone that the, the lead guy would save, you know. We didn't want a lead guy who was a stiff either. And uh, so, yeah, that was easy. Say we want a woman who knows what she's doing. We needed somebody who could bring some scientific information into the movie and explain some things. And we and we wanted sort of a love interest. It's okay. It's fine. I mean, it wasn't big on our on our agenda, but that was fine. Well, let's have have the woman be the knowledgeable one. So have her be a grad student, and have her be you know kick ass tough, as tough as the guys. That's all, that was easy to do. And then Michael Gross's character, Bert Gummer, he was so on the edge that we thought, you know, 
We should give him a wife who serve as keeper. She's the one who, you know, keeps him from going over the edge. I thought that would be funny and sweet and actually, to some degree, truthful of couples. You see it all the time. One, one of them balances out the other and keeps, they keep each other from going off the side of the road of life. <laughs> so that worked out great. Reba was a real surprise. It was funny because uh, Universal said to us, I think Reba was recording for Universal or something at the time, I don't know. I knew almost nothing about country music, you know, other than Hank Williams and a couple of people, Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings. That was, I knew nothing about it, nothing. And they said, well, Reba, Reba McIntyre wants to come in and read for the part. And I go, Reba, and then, I, and then you know, it was explained to me who she was. And I, Oh my God, we're gonna get some woman with this giant bouffant hairdo coming in, ridiculously, absolutely inappropriate kind of character with the long fingernails and all that stuff. And so I walked in the office one day and Reba's sitting in the hallway on a chair and I to say hi and I walked right by her. I didn't know who she was. Just this simple, you know, you know, cute woman, nice looking woman, but just absolutely simple, like she's going to the supermarket and walk right by her, you know. And but that's Reba, I didn't know. I, and she came in and she read for the part and she was good. And then I said, I had to just say, you gotta understand, we're gonna be in the desert. It's gonna be filthy. The wind is gonna blow. You're gonna be chewing sand. It's gonna be hot. We're gonna do take after take after take with all this special effects. And it's gonna really be tough. It's not gonna be fun, you know, blah, 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 blah. And she said, no problem, I'll do it. Let's just go do it, let's do it. I was like, okay, and you know, she was perfect, you know. She was not a spoiled diva, is what it turned out to be. So she was great, she was a lot of fun. And uh, I remember when we did the first take, her first take, the first take in which she has, in which she appears and has a line of dialogue. It's when the truck pulls up in front of the general store and they notice the grab boy tentacle clutching you know, underneath the truck, uh, and um, everybody, everybody's there, and uh, realizing something's alive out in the desert. And she had a few lines of dialogue, and then Ron, yeah, Ron calls cut. You know, we got it, and Reba just screams something like, "Yeah, I'm in the movies!" So she knew she was in the film. You know, at that point, and she it was great. She was just uh, really, really good. Then she goes on to have this TV show. It goes on forever, which is great. I mean, she's wonderful. So I like to think we had some part in that. I don't know. When you were writing and making Tremors, there was a lot going on in the world, like the end of the Cold War, the end of Reagan, the end of Thatcher. Was all of that on your mind when you were writing it? None of that was in my mind. What was in our mind was, wouldn't it be scary if there was a big worm that wanted to eat us? You know, that's, that, that's what was in our mind. There's something in you know, the nature of you can analyze and go, well, it's a subterranean, so therefore it's a subconscious. You can get into Freud or Jung, I don't know who it would be, and it resonates with you. You know, it, there's a deep thing, deep, you know, that's something, the unseen, but even more so, not just the unseen out in the woods, but the unseen underneath your very feet, you know. So I, that obviously had a big impact on people's, you know, relationship with the film, I think, just as Jaws obviously was. And uh, 
And it was seen as, oh, a ripoff of Jaws. You know, it's Jaws, but in the dirt instead of the water. I understand that. But I, yeah, that really, really helped. The other thing about them being unseen, obviously, if you have very little money to make a movie, that's a real uh, economical way to have, to have an antagonist. You don't see them until they suddenly jump out or burst up through the floor of the store or through the ground. So that really helped. You can keep the tension up and keep the sense of the presence of the creature up to maximum without seeing, seeing it at all. So that was great. If there was another way to do that, we would have done it since then, but we couldn't figure out anything else. We had to then start, in the sequels we did, we had to then start showing the, the, uh, the antagonistic creature of the week, whatever it was. They weren't hiding under the ground. It made it more difficult. But then by then we had CGI, which helped us out. That whole thing of what you feel and what you don't see, it's almost like Hitchcock. Well, I don't even know that we're remotely close enough to the sophistication of Hitchcock. It was brilliant. But the idea, of, again, it's the unseen. I mean, that's, the, that, that's scarier. I mean, it's, scare, it's almost the most frightening, almost up until the point the creature appears, which seems the reverse of what it should be. The thing you fear is it's more scary than when it shows up. As they say, when you're afraid of something, move toward it, confront it, then it's okay. If you're running away from it or hiding, it's much scarier. So maybe that has something to do with making it scary. It was important that it was scary, that we weren't laughing the whole time. We'd laugh at the people, some of their comments, but not the fact that the creature was chewing somebody up. That shouldn't, hopefully would not be fun. How important was home entertainment in terms of the survival of Tremors? Well, I think it saved it. I mean, the what was interesting about the timing of the Tremors was um, that uh, uh, I think maybe, I don't know, I haven't done any research, nor will I, I think it was kind of the last sci-fi monster horror movie, whatever, genre you want to stick in it, that was made without any CGI. There was no computer-generated imagery. Everything in that movie is real. It was in front of the camera. Brilliant miniatures by the Skotak brothers who had worked with, with Jim Cameron. Uh, again, Tom, Tom and Alex, full-size graboids. Everything that happens is happening. It's not, there's not, no digital anything. Not a pixel in that movie. And, and it worked, but it worked for a number of reasons. One of it was we both, we all had a really strong background in editing. So we knew we can make this thing seem real and seem like it's really doing what it's supposed to be doing by knowing how to cut. Give me 12 frames of this, 24 frames of this, like two seconds of this, then the camera pans and we cut to the, and you put it together and it really brings it to life. It's filmmaking. It's filmmaking making something work as opposed to animation making something work. And then CGI exploded right after that and became really big. And we used that when we did Tremors 2, 3, and 4. We relied on CGI because we had teeny budgets and that was the way to solve that problem. CGI, of course, got way, way overdone and lost its power and its um, 
you know, it's bankrupt in my opinion. CGI has bankrupted movies and people, I think, will respond to something that they know is real, that was done real. It's like Buster Keaton doing these amazing gags and he was always like, we're not gonna cut in the middle of this shot and go to another angle of me rolling down the hill or whatever because that's the moment the audience stops believing that I'm really doing it. And it's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Really, really do it in front of the camera. It's great. And when you pull it off, it's so much fun. It's fun, you know, but when animators do it, they say, yeah, of course it looks great. What advice would you give to young filmmakers who were inspired by Tremors? First thing I would say is make films. Just make films. Do Just somehow, and it's so easy now, Make those films, learn how to edit, learn, learn. You know, in making the stuff, all you're gonna do is make mistakes. You know, you're gonna make all the mistakes and that's how you're gonna learn. So keep shooting, take your iPhone and write a story and go out and shoot. And don't go out and shoot a feature length thing, a 95 page script. Do a seven or eight page short film and do it the best you can and then learn from your mistakes and then do another one and they'll get better and better. You know, you're, you're gonna be a filmmaker. Get them, put them online, post them online. Directors now are, you know, even the remotest spots of the world, they're making little movies in their apartment, putting them online, people are watching them, they're talking about them, they're getting into festivals, they're winning awards, you know, and from there you can get to doing a feature film. If, you know, somebody's gonna put up money, maybe Hollywood, maybe somewhere else, they'll put up money to do a low budget feature film. You become, you know, a filmmaker who can support himself or herself making movies, that's great. You can go to film school, that's good too. You don't need it, you don't need film school. You know, costs a lot of money, but if you can do it, that's fine also. But it's much easier than we did because back, back when we were in film school in the 70s, um, boy, you know, film costs a lot of money. We'd be making these movies, we'd have a roll of film, it would be like three minutes of film, and you're shooting and you're just going, should I shoot another take? I can't, I can't afford it because I've got other sh You know, everything was, you had to be so economical and so careful and rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Um, but now, boy, you can just do so much stuff. It's a great way to learn, you know. I would take advantage of technology to give yourself a break and, and do that. Better to do it, to do it, I think, uh, than go to film school. Film school is fine, nothing wrong with it. And there's a, a bunch of stuff you'll learn there too, but it's much better to just to do it. Make your movies and let people tell you what they think of them and you'll learn really fast, I think. That's the way to do it. We had two groups at film school. They, you had the critical studies film students and then you had the ones who just wanted to make movies. And there was sort of these two camps and it was so funny, you know. And you know, we were production students. It was, so we had no respect for you know, these intellectuals, and they saw us as sort of these sort of Visigoths, you know, slobs who just want to shoot film. So it was kind of funny. It's great if you can bring those together in one person who's got, you know, an academic appreciation of film and film history, and also the talent to make movies. That's great. That's a wonderful, you know, way to be. That was Brent Maddock talking tremors. Make sure to meet us back here next Friday where we'll be talking to Nancy Roberts about her experience on bringing tremors to the screen. In the meantime, 
If you want to brush up on your survival skills in the event of a Graboid invasion, head over to the official Tremors YouTube and Facebook channel or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Tremors Movie. Over and out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.